everybody. I'm really glad to be here. Um, super honored to be able to spend the day with you today and um, in uh, God's Word. Um, I'm honored to be able to be here at such an important time Why Jared and Jen are away retrieving their kiddos. And um, as a family who did this not long ago, uh, in March of 2020, our family brought home uh, not three, but one uh, from Haiti. And um, the process has been really wonderful for our family. But what's been amazing about it has been watching our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church become family to Bettina too, to our daughter as well. So as you uh, integrate those three kiddos into this congregation, I pray that you will just love them exceptionally and that you will uh, you'll be patient with Jared and Jen. They're going through, they're going to go through a ton of stuff that they don't even know about. Um, and they're going to need your uh, extra measure of grace and patience with them. They may respond to things in unusual ways for a little while. Just give them a little bit of grace and time. So I'm honored to be with you, like I said today. Some of you know me uh, because uh, I was here for some time, uh, for about a year um, with the congregation, but most of you don't know me, and that's good. That means the congregation's changed and grown a lot uh, since the time that I was here. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I want to introduce myself a little bit. Um, uh, I have a wife named Jennifer who we met when we were about the age that we learned to tie our shoes. Um, and uh, we grew up together, and we were high school sweethearts, and we went off to college, and we didn't make it all the way through college before we got married. We got about halfway through college, and we got married. And then two weeks before our graduation from college, we had our first son, Noah, um, who's not here with us today. Um, he's um, serving the church in Dumfries this morning. And then we had Ruthie and Isaiah and Moses, and then got to bring home Bettina last year. So our family has grown and expanded. Uh, but when I was 24 years old, I was working at a church in Stafford, Virginia, and I was the music pastor there. And I felt uh, stirred, compelled to step out of my secure job there to go and plant a new church uh, near the main gate of Marine Corps Base Quantico. And so, um, so that was about 16, almost 17 years ago now. And um, it was really challenging in the beginning when we made that step. We, we did that, and we wanted Marines from our congregation in Stafford to go with us. So we stood up front and said, hey, guys, go with us. We're going to plant a church at the Marine Corps base. And 10 people joined us, which was really exciting in that effort, none of them Marines. Uh, so that was, that was a challenge and not something I expected in a church full of Marines. But, um, but we ended up um, being a part of uh, starting this church, and it was really challenging in the beginning, to be honest. I mean, I wasn't equipped or prepared for it. I, I, I was called to it. I'm confident the Lord had called me to that. The, uh, the leaders of my church had affirmed that and many other people in my life, but, but it was really, really difficult in the beginning. Those uh, first years, it grew really slowly, but it started gaining steam, and we began preparing members in our church to leave and go form new churches, and it's been incredible to see how the Lord's taken those very naive and very humble efforts and resulted in many churches just like this one, and so I know that you guys don't know me, but I know you. Uh, and, uh, and I want you to know that we have prayed for you before your existence as a congregation, as a people, and we made lots of sacrifices as a congregation so that this church could be here and other churches, and you mean a lot to us. In fact, a few years ago, this church was 
you know, it felt vulnerable, like things weren't going too well, and we, we felt obligated to step in and be a part of it. And I think that's the beauty of being a part of a family of churches like this. I'm sure there will be a time in the future where our church will feel vulnerable and you will have to step in and help us. Uh, but that has been incredible. And, and last Sunday, I was at the launch of Pillar Stafford uh, in, our, in this 17 years almost. This is our 30th church plan, this family of churches. It's just been incredible to see all these wonderful things happen and all the people come uh, to faith in Christ. It's just a, a testimony to God's grace in our midst. And we get to be a part of something that's really special. And I know that you don't know all those other churches and all those other people and you don't interact with the individuals from there. But just know that you're part of a, a family of faith uh, that's even bigger than, than the group here. So, um, so I'm ex excited to be here with you today. Um, I understand that you're working through the book of Exodus, so I've been assigned uh, two chapters in the book of Exodus, which is impossible, by the way, uh, but to walk through two chapters in the book of Exodus. Uh, uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the best I can to, to glean something from that that will be helpful and edifying for us. Uh, by this point in the book of Exodus, you've heard the, the groaning of the people of Israel, um, in the first two chapters, they're oppressive and, um, and hard time in Egypt. Uh, you've heard about the Pharaoh and their oppression of the people of, uh, of Israel or the Israelites. And in chapters 1 and 2, and, and you, then you chronicled the incredible deliverance that God gave those people as they left, uh, left Egypt through the plagues and the Passover in chapters 3 through 12, you went with them on the journey through the Red Sea already toward uh, the Promised Land. And where we pick up today in chapter 19, there's a, a lot of info here uh, in our time. Our time is pretty limited, so uh, there's no way I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to just go through the two chapters. That, that won't be possible. I feel like it'll be more helpful to us if we pick a part of it. And, and hone in on it a little bit. So there's so much info here in such limited time. And just to be honest with you, I'm not really an academic or a theologian. I'm a, a pastor, and so I'm going to draw out pastoral things, not really academic or theological things so much. Uh, so um, there are, are some really uh, bright spots among us academically, like uh, Pastor Thomas. I am not one of those. Uh, and so there, there are, there's a lot here to, to learn, but I'm going to focus on, um, on the uh, pastoral parts of it. So uh, as we look at 19 and 20, chapters 19 and 20, I, I, I hope that we'll love God more, know him a little bit more out of what we learn here. So uh, about three months after the people of Israel have departed from Egypt, this massive group of people... I don't know if you, they've addressed the size of the, the group, but it's big, about a million folks. Uh, this massive group of people who's traveling by caravan of families and farm equipment through the desert, uh, they, they stopped and they made camp at Mount Sinai. And ultimately, they'd be at the base of Mount Sinai for about 11 months. And so they stop and make camp there, and in Mount Sinai, we really don't know exactly where it is. Some theologians and historians feel like they know where it is, but nobody really knows for sure. We know it's on the Sinai Peninsula, um, and that's about, that's about it, but that's a pretty big space between Cairo and Jerusalem. Uh, if you were to look at 
you know, where, where Egypt and Israel are kind of, you see this like V-shaped peninsula between the two of them, and it's somewhere on there. Uh, that's really all we know. Um, so let's start in Exodus chapter 19. So if you've got your Bible, just go to Exodus 19, and we're just going to really look at a few verses right there at the beginning of Exodus 19. So I'm going to start in verse 3. It says, while Moses went up to God. So the people are encamped at the base. And we'll learn later in the chapter that God really doesn't want the people to come up the mountain at all. He seems pretty strenuous and strict about this. He, he wants them to stay put where they're at. But Moses is invited by the Lord to come up and, and commune with God. And so Moses went up to God. Now remember, we learn in Hebrews later in the New Testament that, that back uh, before Jesus, the way we communicated with God was through the prophets. Now Moses is one of these prophets. Remember in Hebrews, uh, we learned long ago in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us and his son. It's the opening words of the book of Hebrews, right? Okay, so, so these are the long ago in many ways. This is the, the father spoke to our fa- uh, the, the, the God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. This is it, when the prophet was invited up the mountain to talk to God. And so Moses went up, and the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, so the Lord called from the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the household of Jacob, to the people of Israel, so he's telling Moses, I want you to go back and talk to the people, and And here's what I want you to say to them. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what the Egyptians, uh, uh, what I I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So what he starts with here is I want you to go back down and remind the people what I'm like. So before you tell them what, I want you to tell them, I want you to remind them who I am. So again, think about the history of these people. So, having just come through this really difficult situation and God was their hero. They come through this and then when God speaks to Moses to tell him to go back down and deliver the message from God, he says, first, before you say what I want you to say, I want you to remind them what I did in regard to the Egyptians, and I want you to remind them how I held them up like they were on eagle's wings. So God is about to make a new agreement or a new arrangement with his people, with these newly delivered people. But consider, as you hear the promise and their response to the promise from God, that they'd been, what they'd been through, a 430-year national trauma, and I don't say that lightly, uh, it was a national trauma. They've only known generationally as a people slavery for generations and generations. Can you imagine having been enslaved for generations and generations? What that might do to you. They've only known slavery for generations, but God is about to make a brand new arrangement for them with them. Perhaps you've noticed that God is a promise-making God up to this point as you've studied the scripture. You guys have talked about lots of stuff, and God seems to make promises to his people, sometimes unprompted promises to his people. And he's about to make a brand new arrangement with these folks, too. 
Perhaps you've noticed that he's a promise-making God throughout the Bible. God's making promises to his people. Some of God's promises are unconditional promises. There's no condition upon them. God just says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's who I am. And then there's some that are conditional promises. God will, uh, uh, some that God keeps regardless of what people do. Others that are conditional promises where the terms of the promise require men to obey and, uh, and to re- to, in order to receive the benefit of the promise. So the Bible's word for promises between God and men is covenant. So when you hear the word covenant, you should just think promise. Uh, the, the Bible's word for promises between God and men is covenant. Our modern word for these types of arrangement is contract. I think any of those three um, words kind of in view will get you in the zone you need to be in to think about what we're trying to learn here today about God. Our modern word for these types of agreements is contract, but the idea is the same no matter which word you use. A covenant is simply an agreement, a promise, or a contract. Now, a few weeks ago, I was away on a work trip, and, um, and I got a text from my 15-year-old son, Isaiah, who's, who's sitting here. And uh, the text said uh, it was a Facebook post uh, from somebody in Southwest D.C., and uh, they were advertising for sale their 1980 MGB, um, which if you're not familiar, it's a British sports car, small British sports car, and it was bright yellow. And uh, so my 15-year-old son sends me this Facebook marketplace post, and, um, it, and it just has um, some words and an emoji. It just says, here's something to think about, Dad, with a, a little emoji that's like this, you know. Uh, and so I thought about it, as he said. And I texted him back. I said, do you want it? And, uh, and it was advertised for $5,000, which yeah, is an okay price, you know, for a car like that. And uh, I said, do you want it? And he sends back, uh, you know, the communication of our day, a GIF. And, and it's like, you know, like a little kid nodding and said, yes, I want it. Uh, and so, um, so I took that as an affirmative. And I, I just said to him, make me an offer. And make me an offer. I said, it, it's a cool car. And so, uh, a few minutes later, I see the bubbles, you know, and he's, he's, he's making me an offer. And the offer comes through finally, and, and here's exactly word for word what he said to me. He said, well, I was thinking we go in on it 60-40, but considering I currently have $138 to my name, you'll have to pay for it up front, and then, and then I'll get a job. And then the only word I didn't like in here, hopefully, <laughs> over time, I'll pay you back the 60%. That'd be 3000 bucks. By the time I uh, get my license, I'll have, have it paid off. He's very ambitious. He's 15, right? Uh, so uh, also, here's some extra reasons why you should do this, Dad. Also, getting it now, I'd be able to learn how to drive a manual before I actually get on the road with other people. I figured that'd be safer. So he's looking out for all of you, actually. It's pretty nice of him, isn't it? So I, I think about it for a little bit, you know, build a little anticipation before my response, and I just texted him back. I said, I'm in. I'm in. We'll work out a payment plan, but you have to negotiate the deal with the seller. And Isaiah responds, I'll message him tomorrow. So that, that was our whole interaction about this, and now we have a yellow convertible sitting in our driveway because of this interaction. And so that, that was our interaction, but essentially what happened there is, is the kind of agreement we're talking about. The, 
the, the objects and the, the purposes were far less meaningful in our interaction, but it, hopefully it gives us the sort of idea of the sort of, the sort of way God communicates with us. God makes these kinds of arrangements with his people as a way of affirming his loving kindness to them in the same way that I did it to affirm my love for Isaiah. Now, you know that was not a good deal for me, right? I mean, uh, are you doing the math in your head? Like, wait a minute, 60, 40, what benefits he get of that? None is the answer. Um, uh, it, it was really a way of affirming my love for Isaiah. Um, he, he shows his, God shows his reliability, his steadfastness, his faithfulness in the extension of promise to his people. So when you read a promise in the Bible from God, what you need to hear is love from God. Because God only extends promises to you because of his love for you, yet sometimes his promises come with criteria or stipulation that feels like a weight to us. But it shouldn't feel like a weight to us because the very fact that God is, is, is communicating with you in definitive terms about what he will do in the future is an act of love towards you. To show his reliability, his steadfastness, his faithfulness in the extension of the promise to his people. Think about the joy and stability that promises provide us. Without promises, we feel very vulnerable, don't we? When, when I'm trying to get something done or interact with somebody, until they tell me what they intend to do in the future, I feel very insecure about the relationship. It brings joy and stability. With, uh, promises bring joy and stability. They give us a peace of mind so that we don't have to worry about the future, about what someone might do on a whim in the future. We don't have to imagine unforeseen scenarios or in-the-moment responses because promises tell us what we can expect in the future, what we can expect from God in the future and from those who make promises to us. We build we build, as people who give and, and participate in promises, we build credibility by the making and keeping of promises with one another. Now, I'll build credibility with my son if I hold up my end of the bargain. He'll build credibility with me if he holds up his end of the bargain. Right now, neither one of us are really totally sure if the other one's going to hold up his end of the bargain. So we've gone into this relationship and we're going to learn over time if he is reliable, and he's going to learn if I am reliable on this. And that will inform our future interactions, won't it? And our future interactions, and our future interactions, and our future interactions. So understand, as God gives us promise after promise after promise after promise, what he's doing is in us is he's instilling faith and confidence in the trustworthiness of his word to us. So his promises aren't arbitrary. He doesn't throw them out for his benefit. He actually throws them out as a way of training our hearts that we can trust him. That's really powerful and amazing. We build credibility by the making and keeping of promises, and so does God with us. The, the thing is, God knows he's totally trustworthy. He can just demand from us a certain thing, but what he does is he, he, he patiently works with us so that our hearts grow to trust him and know him. And I don't know about you, if you've experienced this in life, but I certainly have in my journey of faith. I became a Christian when I was 15, and, um, and when I was a new Christian, I was just not sure about this whole faith thing. I mean, my first steps of faith were very weak. 
and as I trusted the Lord and I saw him faithful, I thought, oh, he's trustworthy. And I trusted him more. And listen, friends, faith begets faith that begets faith that begets faith. In the same way that faithlessness begets faithlessness begets faithlessness. And what, that, what, what I mean to say by that is that if you, if you don't respond to God in faith, if you don't trust his promises, you will find it easier and easier and easier to disregard God in the future. Yet, if you trust him and rely on him, you will see him to be faithful and you will find it easier and easier and easier to rely on him in the future. Do you know anyone in your life that you look at their life, their spiritual life, and you think, wow, I wish I had that kind of faith. How do they so easily, so effortlessly obey and trust in God? Well, their life, I promise you, is a story of small steps of faith where their confidence in God was was built through those small steps of faith, through those promises made and those promises kept. The first promise that God makes to Adam, uh, he makes to Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and this is called, theologians call this the, the uh, Edenic, Edenic covenant, as in Eden. And it's a great example of a conditional covenant because uh, Adam was required to obey a term in the covenant or terms in the covenant in order to not suffer consequences from the covenant. Uh, it, there's, there's a little more to it, but here's the heart of the covenant found in Genesis chapter 2. It says, and the Lord God commanded man, Adam, saying, you, shall, you may surely eat from every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So that's a covenant, that's a promise. God says to him, you can eat from all the trees, but if you eat from the one tree, you'll die. He makes this promise with him. Then then there's another covenant with God later that God makes with Noah. After Adam and Eve broke the covenant that they'd made with God or that God had made with them, after that was broken, then, then God did, just didn't leave them, which he would have been entitled to do, right? He didn't just leave them. He goes back to another son of his, Noah, another patriarch, and he makes a new covenant because all of the covenants are leading to the maturity and health of his people. So with Noah, after Adam uh, and Eve broke the first covenant, things started going out of control. They got a little haywire pretty fast, honestly. If you read the first couple chapters of, of Genesis, the whole thing unravels uh, uh, in an incredibly fast manner. Uh, it goes haywire. They, they get kicked out of the garden for their sin. Their son murders his brother. And basically the whole world spirals out of control, leading all the way up to the moment when God destroys everybody minus one family. In, in a worldwide flood, the righteous family was saved by building a boat, and eventually the water subsided, and the destroyed world became their habitation. The water subsided, and God makes a covenant again with Noah, this man. And here's the covenant that he made, and this covenant was totally unconditional. So God came, comes to Noah, and he says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God just makes a promise, an unprompted promise, an unconditional promise. He doesn't say, if you obey me or if you're good or if you do what I want you to do, he just says, I'm never going to do this again. 
And, and so you see these promises that are coming from God are meant to instill faith in us. And then later with Abraham, who we call Father Abraham for a reason, another unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham and the patriarchs uh, for his blessing and uh, fruit, was for his blessing and fruitfulness. He says in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Again, an unconditional promise from God to Abraham. Unprompted, unasked for, but a blessing nonetheless. God makes a promise to him. And you know as Abraham's life plays out, that promise looked very bleak at one point. Yet God proved himself faithful. What does it do to your heart when things look bleak, but God comes through? What does it build confidence in you for future trust in him? If you've known people that have walked with the Lord for a long time, often they have, they have very resolved faith. Often toward the end of their lives and, and later in their Christian journey, especially if they have trusted in the Lord over and over again, they have very confident faith. They feel like they understand God in the same way that I understand my wife. I mean, I feel like we've been married 21 years, and I feel like I know her, I understand her, I can predict her behavior. Now, that can be bad too. I can sometimes think she'll, she'll, she could never change or never be different than she is when God can change her and she can be different. But for the most part, I pretty much know how she'll react in most situations, and she knows how I'll react in most situations. We've learned each other. In the same way, in your walk with God, you can learn him. You can understand his ways. You can grow to trust him and know him. I love the quote. Somebody asked uh, Albert Einstein's wife, if she understood the theory of relativity, and she said, no, but I know Albert, and you can trust him. <laughs> you know, and I, I just love that response, because that feels like, uh, that summarizes how I feel about God. Like, you ask me a question about spiritual things, I'm often like, you know, I really don't know, but I do know God, and I think you can trust him, you know. I, I feel that way about God. So Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make your name great. This is, this is the blessing that he gives, an unco uh, uh, unconditional blessing he gives. And that brings us to today's text, the promise, the next covenant we get, just walking through these covenants. There's five covenants really total in the scripture that, that we think of as covenants between God and man. And, and this covenant with Moses is also um, an important covenant. It's a conditional covenant, though. Those, for, those previous two that we looked at were unconditional. God was just going to do what he's going to do regardless of what man did. But this covenant is a conditional covenant. And here's the agreement. Look in Exodus 19 down to verse, I think it starts at 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments. So man's side of the covenant is obedience and commandment keeping. You shall be, now God's side of the covenant, my God, the creator of the world, Yahweh's treasured possession among all peoples. For the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy or a distinct nation, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So remember, Moses is up on the mountain, he's talking to God, and God tells him to go back and say this, go back and tell the people, obey me, 
if you obey me, this promises, if you obey me, I'm going to make you my treasured possession. I know we don't like to think of people as possessions, but to God, we are his possessions. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. He, he created us, and as creator, he's endowed with rights of ownership. God owns you. Even those who reject God and don't believe in him, those who, who believe he doesn't even exist, he owns them. He created them, the scripture tells us, as, uh, and we believe it as, as people who believe the word, that he knit them together in their mother's wombs. He owns them. And so we, uh, he offered the people of Israel to be his treasured possession among all people if they would only obey him. So get what's happening here. Moses is up on the mountain. He's talking to God. Um, and Moses is mediating, if you will, between God and men. Remember, because of the Hebrews thing we talked about. Long ago, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. So God's going to talk to people, but he's going to do it through a prophet. And in this case, it's Moses, and Moses is mediating. And it's funny, when you read Exodus 19, he goes up the mountain, he goes down the mountain, he goes up the mountain, he goes down the mountain. There's, there, there's going up and down the mountain quite a bit. In fact, uh, throughout the whole story of Moses in the Exodus, Moses goes up and down this mountain seven times to interact with God and come back to the people. Um, it's pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, I don't know, uh, we don't know which mountain Mount Sinai is, but what we know about it is it was big. And I don't know how far he had to go, I don't know if he went all the way to the top, but this, this man goes up and down the mountain to talk to God and then bring back the message down to the people and then talk to the people and then go back up to God. He was mediating. He was doing what Jesus does for us today. So this is what's happening here. He's going between God and man. He's the mediator because uh, this is the way that God brought his, uh, his word to his people throughout history um, so Moses is, is up with the Lord on the mountain and he receives this promise from God and he descends back down the mountain to deliver the news to the people. And look at verse 7. So Moses came down and he called the elders of the people and he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people said together, all the people, the, uh, they, they, I'm sorry, they all said together, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. By the way, this was a good promise, an easy promise. This was an easy contract to sign. Just like Isaiah's contract with me was an easy one to sign for him. It was a good deal. It's the best interest rate you're ever going to get where, the, where the, the lender pays for 40%. I mean, that's a good deal, right? This is a good deal too. This is a sweetheart deal. This is a Nike deal. I mean, this was what God offered to the people. All you have to do is obey me, my commandments. And if you obey me, I'm going to give you this favored position in the universe as my people, my chosen people, special for my possession, distinct, set apart from everyone else in the world, holy people. This was an incredible promise from God, and the exchange was a relatively minor one. Obey his commands. So... People pretty immediately accepted the covenant. They countersigned to the contract. This agreement between God and man was fully ratified. This is a very significant set of verses in Exodus. You might think of this as like the linchpin between promises to people and promises to peoples. This is the first time where we really see God making a promise to a, a people, not just people. 
a covenant with people. In this case, whereby Israel becomes servants of God and God comes to give them this favored position in the world. Not unlike a marriage covenant when a husband promises to provide love and blessing and protection and, and provision to his wife and his wife promises to submit and respect him. This is a not both sides do something a little bit different, something slightly different, but the two things make the whole system work together. And, it, and it's in this context of covenant that we see a few things. So I just want to draw these couple things, four things out pastorally for you. The context of this covenant that we see a few things. Number one, we see the Ten Commandments, which comes in, um, in the next chapter. Now, Thomas gave me this two chapters to look at. My temptation was to go right for the Ten Commandments, go right for the jugular, and just walk through the Ten Commandments with you. And I started working on that, doing that, and I just thought, yeah, but if we don't understand why we have the Ten Commandments, we don't understand what hangs on the other side of the Ten Commandments, we don't understand God's motivation for giving us these kinds of stipulations then perhaps our hearts won't naturally want to do that. But the hope here, and why I say this is a pastoral talk, my hope here is that your affections for God are stirred because of his kindness to you, and we don't see his laws and rules as oppressive, but as liberating. The Ten Commandments are given to us as the covenant details or the fine print of the contract. Now, we know from the Bible that uh, the book of Deuteronomy, for example, we've got many uh, detailed prescriptions about the, uh, the way that, that, that these laws that we see in the New Testament should be further refined. And then we've got the, the Ten Commandments as a summary of all the law and prophets. And then we've got even smaller than that, We've got Jesus' words and words from the Old Testament that the most important thing for us to do is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the summary of all the law and prophets. So you could, you could, in a sense, take all of the law and prophets of the Old Testament and you could summarize it in the Ten Commandments. You could essentially take the Ten Commandments and summarize it in, in, in those two simple commands to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So when you think about them, they're just like those little uh, Russian nesting eggs, right? They live inside of one another. They're all together, very important. This is the context of the covenant that we get from God that really is our way of saying back to God, we love you. We love you, God. The reason we obey your commandments, even when they seem counterintuitive to us, countercultural, they seem like not a big deal to us, even when our intuitions say, this is really fine, it's okay. Who am I hurting? Even in that moment, we, as an act of worship, disregard those sins and regard God by saying yes to God and no to those things because he's commanded us in that way. This is a way we love God back for his great love upon us. 
And remember that this covenant for the favored position for the people of Israel and for his people today, the, the covenant, the sort of covenant that would, that would bear to us a favored position like this, it is contingent. This is a conditional covenant. This, it's contingent upon us, our, our, our obedience to this. So these Ten Commandments for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, these Ten Commandments are for them laws, fine prints that are intended to be their side of the covenant. With God, So when we think of the Ten Commandments, we have to think about them as acts of love toward God in response to his loving kindness toward us. Second thing I want you to see is that the covenant keeper uh, is really the true hero of the story of Christianity, uh, of the story of Judaism. The covenant keeper here is God always. God's always the one keeping the covenant. We're always the one breaking the covenant. People are always the ones breaking the covenant. I don't know if I'm causing that. Uh, mayhem there, but I will try to do something different. Uh, God's always the one keeping the covenant, and we're, our people are always the ones that are breaking the covenants. And so uh, God is the covenant keeper. He's the true hero of the story of faith. And I love, I love when you look at these covenants in sequence. You see, what you see is you see a covenant made by God and then a covenant broken by man. And then you see another covenant made by God and another covenant broken by man. And then after that, look, you get another covenant made by God and then another covenant broken by man. It's just like this cycle. And God keeps coming back with new and better promises. Every time his promises get better, every time the opportunities for people to repent and love God and serve him get better and better all the way to the culmination in the new covenant. So the covenant keeper is the true hero of the story because unlike me, when I make a covenant with you and you break that covenant, I'm not coming back to you with a better covenant. I'm coming back to you with a worse covenant. I mean, go back to Isaiah and I's agreement. If, if he doesn't hold up his end of the bargain, the next time he asks me for something like that, I'm not going to be so inclined to do it. But our God loves us so much. He's abundant in loving kindness. His wealth overflows to us. And, and he, he turns up the volume on his love for us. Not turn, doesn't turn it down. He's a covenant keeper. And he's the true hero of our story. The next thing I want you to see, the third thing, is, is the failure of man to keep God's law. God's law is impossible for man to keep. Apparently, because nowhere... Has God, has man been able to keep it? So in one sense, we could imagine theoretically that it's possible or even theologically that it's possible for us to keep God's law or his covenant. But I told you this is not a theological or a theoretical sermon. This is a pastoral sermon. And I'm just going to tell you practically, I pastor people and those people I pastor and even the pastor that pastors those people, I can't keep the laws. You can't keep the laws. And really, we know, we've learned, and I'm sure you've heard in this church that the law was not intended really exactly for us to keep as much as it was intended to show us our inability to keep the law and our need for Christ and his grace. So what we have in our failure is a confirmation in our need for a Savior. So the law in a sense, serves us by battering our pride into oblivion. So every time we believe or we think that we have the ability to overcome, we are reminded by our own weaknesses. 
So we strive, we try, we attempt, and sometimes fail. And the failure of man to keep God's law is one of the purposes of God's law. He didn't give us the law to to exacerbate us, to trick us, to 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 give us something that he knew we couldn't he knew we couldn't keep to, to 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 devastate us. He gave it to us so that he could illuminate to us his goodness. And the last thing I want you to see is that there's a new a final, a better covenant, a last covenant, if you will, that's given to us in the Bible. There's, there, there is another covenant in, in, in the order of covenants. So we've got the, the, uh, the uh, covenant in, with Adam in Eden. We've got the, uh, the other covenants that we went through. I'm blanking right now. Hold on. We've got the covenant with, uh, with uh, Noah and the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses. But then there's another, another covenant with man. There's a covenant with David. God makes another covenant with David, with King David, if you will. And the covenant he makes with David is, again, an unconditional covenant. And the covenant's pretty simple. It's a promise that he will come uh, through him, through David, will come a true and better king. So God makes a promise to a earthly king that through his line or his, as an ancestor of his, a true, actual eternal king will come. And this is the foreshadowing of God even even in the Old Testament to show us that that he will come in flesh. So there's that other there's the Davidic covenant that points us to the fact that one day there will be a true king who will reign forever. But then finally, we get into, in the New Testament, we get the new, what we call the New Covenant. And you, you have heard that language, you're probably familiar with the idea, but the New Covenant is the last and final pro- promise from God. It's the time when the volume is turned all the way up on God's grace toward us. Where even though we have broken covenant after covenant after covenant after covenant as a race, God continues to, to pour even more grace on us And he offers to us this new covenant. God promises to forgive our sins if we repent and believe. So now our obedience, our our grace from God is not contingent upon our ability to obey the law. Now, all of a sudden, our grace from God is contingent upon his ability to obey the law. In his son. God's promise to forgive our sin And uh, and there will be universal knowledge of the Lord. Uh, This is another aspect of the promise. And so uh, create a new covenant between, between God and his people. Now that we're under this new covenant, both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Gentiles, don't let that pass over you. Not just those select people that God that were offered the original covenants with God, but now all of us, both Jews and Gentiles, those who were in God's favored group and those who are outside of God's favored group, which includes almost all of us, by the way, can be free from the penalty of our own sinfulness and of our own law or of God's law. We're now given the opportunity to receive salvation as a free gift, as depicted in Ephesians chapter 2. Grace by grace, we've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of ourselves. And this 
the inauguration, the beginning of this new covenant with God, means that the old covenant has passed away. The Bible tells us that in Galatians very clearly. It makes very clear by saying that the new covenant has been declared uh, and that the first covenants were, are obsolete. Galatians tells us that, that we don't have to think, oh gosh, now we have to keep both covenants, all these covenants, all five covenants. No, the new covenant, the covenant that we live under, the better covenant, the, the volume max 10 covenant that we live under with God's grace is that we, that we, uh, that we respond to him through obedience and faith. And he saves us by the work of his son on the cross. By saying new covenant, he's declared that we are his children and that the first covenants are obsolete. That first covenants were, our, those first covenants, they were like our teachers, our, our guardians, our babysitters. They were helping us. They were there to, to, to help us live right before God. But he's given us a new and better covenant. Now, faith is coming. We're no longer under this guardian of the old covenant. The law, which was integral to the covenant of Israel, has passed away with its commands and regulations, Ephesians 2. And believers have died to that law since they have died to Christ. So that, that, that law is, has passed away. It passed away in our death unto God. The death of ourselves so that we could live to God. This is an incredible mercy from God. And what he's offering to us is this series of covenants the series of promises that should for us increase our faith in him and give us greater confidence in his love for us and, and, and just an acknowledgement of his extreme mercy in our lives to save us even though we've constantly rebelled against him. So let this stir for you wonder and awe and reverence and worship for the God that we serve and love. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we treasure you above all else. I know that the scripture tells us that, that in, in one of those covenants that we could have been your treasured possession, or the Israel could have been your treasured possession, but Lord, you are our treasure. You're our treasured possession. Uh, we, don't, we don't possess you in any meaningful way, but God, to be found in you and be associated with your resurrection, to be known by your son, oh God, that is an incredible mercy in our lives. And I, I just think about how tiring it has been over the course of my life to attempt to be good, to attempt to meet even my own standards or the standards of those around me, much less your holy standards, and to be completely exhausted and discouraged by my inability to do that, God. And in the midst of all of that, the message of Christ that came to me one glorious day and has come to us that we no longer have to strive for that, but we can rely on the striving of your perfect son. So Jesus, we love you. God, we treasure you. Holy Spirit, we receive you. Thank you, God, for your mercy in our lives. Thank you for loving us and for not giving up on us. Thank you for continuing to find new ways to bring yourself to us, to reconcile the, us to yourself, even though we created this great distance between us. Lord, we love you and we treasure you. God, we pray that as we go throughout this week, we're out there interacting with people who are going to be breaking covenants with us left and right. God, would you help us to mimic you and your behavior by loving even those who sin against us? This is your way. It's the way that you've modeled for us and we want to live 
it out before others as well. In Jesus' name we pray and for his glory. Amen.